Good evening, can you hear me? Good. I'm Ze'eva Cohen. I direct the dance program under the directorship of Michael Cadden, the director of theater and dance. Uh, we live at 185 Nassau Street, and we are very happy and proud that uh, Bill T. Jones is here to share with us some of his wisdoms and stories. Uh, last year, he performed at McCarter. He did the breathing show. If you saw it, it's a one-man show. And he'll be here again at McCarter next year with, I understand, uh, Lincoln Center Chamber Orchestra. I promised I will not give biography because he's going to talk about his life in the process of his lecture. But I'll tell you that he's a dancer, choreographer, artistic director of B.L.T. Jones' Arnie Zane Dance Company, and he has been a constant source of inspiration to us dancers and choreographers uh, for many reasons, but primarily, and the only one I'll pick to talk about briefly, is that he always finds a way to stretch the boundaries. But he does it in a way that brings us in, not alienating us. And for me, this is very important. Even so, he deals with very difficult issues. It is always challenging, but elegant. So here is Bill T. Jones. Excuse the notes, but I'm not so confident about certain things that I'm talking about tonight. I'm a student, and I have my notes so that I don't misrepresent myself or those people I love and respect. The truest expression of a people is in its dances and in its music. Bodies never lie. Agnes DeMille, 1975. Now, I'm not talking to a dance audience, am I? Yes, no, yes. Agnes DeMille? Good. The truest expression of a people is in its dances and in its music. Bodies never lie. Agnes DeMille, 1975. One hell of a backache was what it was. I lay on the airport lounge carpet, a benign pool of light pouring through a plate glass window, trying to get comfortable. My mood was dark. So I suppressed my surprise and relief when one of my dancers, Catherine, came over to strike up a conversation. Our exchange began with me tentatively at first and then profusely grappling with what this backache meant. First, it meant I was fragile. <gasps> and my instrument could not be depended on to perform its function. Its function is to move freely and expressively at my command. Yet it had done that well the night before, but this morning I was incapacitated. Why was this a problem? It raised the possibility that my identity in that special group called dancer 
was in question, and hadn't I been a member of that group for 30 years? With this membership came a guarantee that one was a member of a physical elite, living on the margins of acceptable human behavior in a body-obsessed world that is simultaneously suspicious of the body, a society fearful of the body's arc, birth, growth, decline, death its sexuality, its gender, and all the historical, social, even political dimensions the body is the site of. Dance literally gives one permission to move. But move how? Is it free of purpose? The dance club is a prerogative of youth and the glamorous privilege youth claims. This simple backache was suddenly a fresh reminder of mortality as dance defines itself as the opposite of mortality. I had declared on many occasions that dancers are true romantics. That is, dancers believe that in the body exists the most directly available evidence of our participation in the natural world. Dancers rely on this instrument as a medium through which all the great questions of existence can be expressed or at least proposed. Catherine, my young dancer, was generous in the conversations give and take. Her greatest generosity at such a fragile moment was in relating to me, her boss, as one of the dancers' society, as we commiserated about pain, career anxiety, and then in our shared belief in the form. The form. It was at this point we both had to acknowledge a basic difference in our dance world identities. Catherine, at age 23, gives her whole to honing her skills as a dancer. I, at age 49, still dance, but my dominant activity is as an inventor of movement and sequences organized in time and space, a choreographer. But we both relish something dangerous wild, elusive, and irrational in the style of movement we are developing as a company. Can arms and legs be flung, thrown, sliced through space with equal intensity? Can the body be broken down into tiny, tiny parts, articulating at will, and played like a musical instrument? This is the most exciting aspect of dance for me. I contend that I am not interested in thrills such as mountain climbing, underwater cave exploration, or skydiving. Confronting the body's limitations and the societal boundaries projected onto it and daring to push against them, this is excitement and wonder enough for me. So, the body is a gateway to excitement and wonder. It's also a portal that opens to a desperate struggle. The body continues to be the site of major conflicts in the cultural wars. Let's take a look at this. We'll be back in six minutes.
<laughs> Thank you very much. <clears throat> it's not that I want people to separate my dancing from my body or to not see me, but only that they would separate their own agendas and insecurities from my body. I am laden down with other people's fears and expectations. It's not politics that is heavy, it's personal fears. One body looks at another, they recognize each other. What do they see? They rarely see what is in front of them, it's something separate from themselves. Rather, it is a cruel and terrifying reflection of themselves which they judge harshly. What do they fear? They don't think about their feelings about themselves, but put themselves immediately upon my body, and I have to dance with the weight of that on top of me, and it is oppressive. This is a quote from a dancer of mine whose name is Alexander Bella. Alexandra Bella. Bilty Jones is still hiring overweight ballerinas, read one caustic review in the English press a few years ago. It was obviously a reference to Alexandra Beller, a young, balletically trained contemporary dancer. Alex is short and round with full breast and bottom. She describes herself as voluptuous. But who were these other overweight ballerinas? Was it Leilani Barrett, another dancer, a 19-year-old black male with the head of an Egyptian statue and the physique of an NFL lineman and hardly balletically trained? Or was it his predecessor, Lawrence Goldhuber, 350 pounds, former actor with little formal training, a 10-year veteran with the company who, after witnessing the wild diversity of types in my workshop, handed me a card one day saying, if you ever need a big man, call me. <laughs> Hardly a ballerina either. No, the writer's entire scorn was directed at the arresting, open, and brave performer that is Alexandra Beller. In preparing for today's address, I interviewed Alexandra and some others that I felt had a particularly in, uh, poignant insight into our human struggle with the notion of body image, the particularities of their bodies having been the site of controversy. This address has given me the opportunity to think about the relationship of my formal choices to my choreography and as a result to the work's reception in the world. So, I would like to thank Princeton University Public Lectures Committee, the Humanities Conference, the Humanities Council, the Program in Theater Dance, and most particularly, Zeva Cohen, for inviting me here today. I am moved and humbled to have your attention. For reasons so convoluted, and so elusive as to be better left in the hands of a professional psychoanalyst or a historian, I choose to believe that we share some commonality. Am I crazy? We share some commonality. Where is it? Where is it? Is it an art? For me, here I go, soapbox right here, okay? For me, art is the pursuit of that elusive phenomena called beauty. Hold on. I know that term is problematic in the contemporary art world for many justifiable reasons. But please indulge me as I offer this very personal definition. Beauty is an expression of perception that, if only temporarily, unifies the dissonances of this life and becomes fragile evidence of a reality that permeates the one we conditionally agree to call the real world. How's that? <laughs> All right, we're in Princeton. <laughs> right. 
Beauty is an expression of perception that if only temporarily unites the dissonances of this life and becomes fragile evidence of a reality that permeates the one we conditionally agree to call the real world. This beauty speaks to something underneath the world's skin. Perhaps it's called truth or spirit or Hey, that's rhetorical, honey. <laughs> we'll come back to it in a moment. <laughs> Here's our communality in the social realm. My critics say some of my work's greatest use is in the questions it raises about society, not in its aesthetic value. And so we begin with words, information, understanding, shape, history, communality, sharing, art, beauty, truth, spirit, society, politics, value. I come here today, my mind full of doubts and questions, my heart muddled by conflicting feelings, one of which is hopefulness. Oh, freedom. Our insides are now outside, declared my friend, artist Gretchen Bender back in the 1980s, before the 1990s were deemed the culture of complaint as epitomized by reality TV and docudrama. According to some cultural observers writing in the 1990s, this climate was the result of the permissiveness and progressive politics of the 1960s that had given us the gains of the civil rights and anti-war movements. This informed an era in which the long silent were at last heard. Hallelujah. Some of these observers maintain that once the genie of assertiveness was let out of the bottle, permission was given for everyone to tell their stories, even when banal, misinformed, ignorant of history, and impervious to critique. You want that one again? <laughs> what happened to the authority of the official voice, they cried, and they continued to cry. If so many stories are heard representing so many sets of values, how do we affirm the correct values, the official values of our troubled culture? If our discourse has become a cacophony of voices and values, then who is in charge? What is good and what is bad in terms of public policy, economic policy, morality, and art? And what about that time-honored social construct, the other? referred to in so many different contexts. It refracts into a kaleidoscope of possibilities. When viewed through a positivist lens, the other is the hero, the role model, set apart by some accomplishment that has earned him or her the admiration of many. There is the other as deviant, rejected by society because of some practice or set or act of, because of some practice, act, or origin deemed unacceptable, repulsive, suspect. And then there is the other, in whose presence society squirms uncomfortably. This is not because of any specific act or origin, but because of the differences these individuals represent. This difference is an unwelcomed mirror held up to society's self-image, fears, or longing. Society is unwilling to share the human label with such individuals. Choosing instead to categorize them as an unfortunate variation, a burden, some other. And what is this society that I keep evoking? 
Society is any individual or group who lays claim to the officially sanctioned voice or viewpoint. And here is an interesting conundrum. Each and every one of us here becomes society when defining someone else as the other. The other, the pariah, the chosen one, the outsider, the outcast, the maverick, the freak, the exception, the special case, the... It seems that in our culture, with its short attention span and voracious appetite for novelty, everyone's specialness is potential material for media spend and public consumption. So who are the real others? Am I addressing a room full of such individuals tonight? Is that the label, the site of our commonality? Who are you? As I stated earlier, this is an age that is, depending on one's point of view, either blessed or burdened with personal narratives. I've been asked to address you today as an artist. I am often asked, what should an artist do? What should an artist do? Doctors are obliged to heal, architects to build, politicians to shape public policies and provide political leadership. Scientists to ask questions and go in search of answers, but an artist? An artist does not have to do a damn thing. He or she should be the freest of all, a mad professor set on demonstrating that all sense is nonsense, giving form to the formless. Oh, freedom. I have a weakness for this notion of art as something aloof, fragile, and wild. I believe art's true nature can be described as Euripides 2,500 years ago describes his Bacchae's longing, here in C.K. Williams' translation of the classic tragedy. Will I throw my bared throat back to the cool night? Back the way, oh, in the green joys of the meadow, the way a fawn frisks, leaps, throws itself as it finds itself safely past the frightening hunters, past the nets, the houndsmen urging on their straining hounds, free now, leaping, tasting free wind now, being wind. Now as it leaps the plain, the stream and river, out at last, out from the human, and free back into the green, rich, dapple, shadowed tresses of the forest. Ultimately, however, an artist is a person with a social location, a class, a history, an origin, an ethnic group, a society, and a body that is the site of all knowledge. As an individual so described, what does that individual care to do? You. What forces are at work on that individual, you? The artist informing the work he or she makes. So the artist is an ordinary citizen living an exceptional life. The ordinary citizen takes on the mantle of the other. I created my first choreography in 1972. I had started performing much earlier, if one considers the rude puppet shows I would produce in the third grade, with players made of wooden ice cream spoons while the teacher's back was turned. It was years later, however, having identified myself as an artist, that I realized several things. I was angry as hell. I wanted to be loved or valued, and though socially popular and a member of a very large family, I felt desperately lonely. 
experience taught me I was exhibiting classic symptoms of alienation. It was then I started trying to tell my story so that I could make sense of my relationship to the official story. I am sure many of you will know what I mean when I say that I felt myself the other long before I knew I was an artist. When I was three years old, my father had decided he wanted to become a black Yankee. <clears throat> that is, he wanted to cease the migrant farm worker's life, traveling south to north and back on a seasonal basis, and settle permanently in the Yankee North. He desired more economic opportunities and a better education for his children than was available in the small North Florida community we called home. Because we earned our living as migrant workers, unlike many other blacks who were and had been heading to the big industrial cities of the North, Chicago, Cleveland, Detroit, New York, we settled in a farming community in western New York State. Becoming a black Yankee was to join a tiny minority of colored folk cut off from black culture, save that that appeared sporadically on television, in the movies, on radio, or in magazines. The education he sought for his children was available, but at a price. This education was a direct challenge on the worldview and values of our southern black family and produced in the children a schizoid effect in our social personas. We adopted one constructed set of behaviors at school, in the white world, and another at home, Proper talking there, real talking here. And there was the peril of puberty and the specter of miscegenation in this conservative community. My classmates and I went from being playmates, boys and girls, to sexual beings of different races. And oh yes, there was an added dimension for me. My burgeoning sexuality was worrisome because of the strong feelings I was having for my male classmates. All of this was happening against the turbulent and exciting national debate on civil rights. The official voices authority, founded on the U.S. military-industrial complexes having saved the world in two consecutive world wars, was now being challenged by the debacle that was Vietnam. Protest was the ethos of the era, its style, substance, and future. Protest and become visible. Protest, any attempt to understand the body in a social and artistic context must address the issue of the body as an instrument of protest. One of the interviewees I mentioned earlier is a dear friend of mine whom we shall call Eileen. <clears throat> Eileen has struggled with an eating disorder for much of her life. She told me that for her, the loss of control of her personal voice became the loss of control of her body. She feels that in the face of certain family concerns and in response to the images of female beauty as described by the official voice, she decided to stop listening to her body. Her ideal body is, in fact, no body. Eileen declares, I need to protest to people that I am not only body or that body is not the one I truly am. As an activist in fighting eating disorders, she has access to data that reveal that anorexia and bulimia are no longer in the exclusive domain of young women and girls, white and middle class, privileged. There is evidence of these disorders among men, both gay and straight, as well as new immigrants of both genders. 
these studies show that it's the outsider mentality that can rebel by literally throwing up. For me, the turbulence of the world became an incentive to turn inwards. And has it ever been different? This inward turning gave me an identity as the outsider, the other, but it gave me something else as well. It shaped the way I experienced the world. My looking was racial and gender specific. My body image was an intense dialogue within an official image. All of these images, all of these elements, I now confront as an artist whose primary material is the human body. As I attempt to find what is meaningful, effective, and true, what does my company look like as I strive to craft the image of the world I desire to live in? And why do I so often look outside the dance world for performers and information? Here's a description taken from my memoirs last night on Earth. It's the final moments of what was called the promised land of a large rambling work called The Last Supper at Uncle Tom's Cabin, The Promised Land. <clears throat> the work develops in an ever more abstract direction. Long lines of dancers travel across the stage performing 13 gestures culled from religious iconography as varied as Tiepolo's fresco in Venice, a bit of kitsch pottery from Little Italy, an ancient painting from a church in remotest New Mexico. These lines coming and going sometimes break into clusters of individuals partnering, handling each other gently. Sometimes the arena madness returns as it does in the revival meeting sequence, wherein one person in each of 12 trios behaves as if possessed and is either assisted or restrained by two others. This frenetic field of activity coalesces into a statuary through which the fully clothed John Coles, a 65-year-old former executive, and a naked young woman whom we call the innocent, enact a touching, oddly unsettling duet that is part seduction, part seduction, and part confession. Sage stands nearby reciting simple instructions. Sage is John's wife in real life. He will take you by the hand and take you to another place. If you fall, he will reach out for you. Over the course of this half-hour segment of Last Supper at Uncle Tom's Cabin, The Promised Land, participants could choose to remove articles of clothing until they were completely naked. In the final moments of the piece, the ever-present drive of Julius Hempel's score mellows to a single saxophone line performing a lulling counterpoint to a stage covered with the fat, skinny, rich, poor, young, male, female, Asian, Spanish, gay, straight, black, Native American, and European naked singing together. Robert Wurzel's evocation of 19th century stage lighting, which had illuminated the cabin section, is now warm, golden, flattering, supportive, as the cast ambles forward and back, sounding nonsense syllables and childlike harmony. The promised land, with its hordes of naked flesh coming wave after wave into the footlights, pubic patches, pert breasts, sagging breasts, wrinkled knees, blissful eyes, furtive expressions of shame, is a visual manifestation of my profound sense of belonging. This was a portrait of us, all of us. And this is who I am too, one of us. It was my battle to disavow any identity as a dying outcast and to affirm our commonality. In it, some 1,000 people from 30 cities stood naked, took a bow and said, we are not afraid. 
Uncle Tom's Cabin was three and one half hours long, and it toured for almost two years. It was denounced by the Vatican. It was deemed sprawling and full of platitudes, applauded for its reliance on community, the process by which it was created, its humanity, and its scope. It was the largest work I ever made and a work that came out of my desire to sum up everything I believed. It was impossible for it to succeed, but it did not fail. If each body can be described as a text, then each constellation of bodies represents an ever-expanding field of opportunities to discover and learn from. I began today with a video of a work I made last year entitled Fantasy and Sea for the Bay Area-based Axis Dance Company. It's a formal work for the music of Schubert for seven dancers, four in wheelchairs and three conventional ones. What did I learn? I learned that we shared the determination of not making works built around our otherness. I learned that we share the concern as to how to build an organization and all the questions this represents. What about repertory, training, funding, and marketing? I learned that I had to rethink my notions of synchronicity, gesture, and athleticism as I attempted to find a shared movement vocabulary. I learned that there were times when it was right that people were separated around their abilities. And I learned to look for those unexpected opportunities when they could be joined. I was struck by the effort synchronicity between performers of diverse ability demands. Here, everyone's arms, torsos, and legs obey different laws or none at all. It was an important realization for me as I struggled to bring rapid locomotion, running, walking, skipping into musical relationship with wheelchairs, manual and or electric. I learned that an electric wheelchair accelerates, deaccelerates, turns and stops in a profoundly different manner than a manual one. I learned the Axis dancers, a vivid group of individuals, have great wit and a sense of the ridiculous. I was knocked for a loop when first exposed to their incorrect humor. This is called Crip Hands. Shortly after the premiere of Fantasy and Sea, I was invited to address the Dance Able Conference on International Conferences, an international conference of mixed ability performers. In preparing for my address, I interviewed the Axis group with a list of questions that I felt would give me an even more intimate insight. As I have said earlier, many of us today, like my friend Eileen and myself, subscribe to the notion that any attempt to understand the body in a social and artistic context must address the body as an instrument of protest. One of my intentionally provocative questions to Axis was, is your dancing an act of defiance? Judith, one of the two directors, answered that she came to dance out of an initial interest in expressive movement. It was only after entering the field and realizing how intensely political and social professional dancing is for a disabled person that she became defiant. After 12 years of company life, she can once again approach the dance as free of polemic. The question for her now is, if the work is neither politically nor issue driven, what is it? Can Axis be as good as anyone else? Megan, a lovely performer living with multiple sclerosis, said, I related to Axis's movement first. 
More and more it has become to be a defiance of my own bodily limitations. She is quick to add, everyone has limitations, however. I ask them what of this era's discourse around the concept of the other. Their thoughtful answers were laced with irony. They all agreed that a disability is a culture of its own that is difficult to know unless one is initiated. So they accept that they are the other. Ironically, Axis has been pressed to re-examine their otherness in faces of charges that they are not racially diverse. So obviously, in the eyes of certain others, these bold, unusual individuals represent the official voice of authority. Curious. Alexander Beller, from her particular vantage, has this to add. You ask if I relate to groups which are other, and I told you I do not. In thinking about this further, I realize how different the issue of size is from so many others. There is no source of pride in being large. There is shame and disgrace because it's one's own fault. It is not, quote, living in an unfair world where we fall down steps and end up in a wheelchair or are surrounded by Philistines who see skin color before people. There is gay pride, racial pride, the pride of survival, but there is no pride in being fat. There is no commiseration available. I don't know who wouldn't trade themselves in for a better model if they could. The only thing I could associate this with is addiction. Drug or alcohol addicts have developed their own system of support for one another, but largely they are still blamed by society and must battle a great deal of shame and judgment. Curious. Yet another question concerns Axis's plans for the future. A dancer's life under the best circumstances is short, threatened with failure of body and will. Dance touring is grueling and most dancers don't make much of a wage. A pertinent aside here would be that in my interviews of non-traditional dancers, when asked the question, how does your body affect your career? The unanimous answer was that their bodies are both a hindrance and an asset. It sets them apart in a world where any edge of uniqueness is an advantage. My question to Axis was, do you see your path as one that is set apart, a preserved domain, or do you intend to exist more and more in the competitive milieu known as the dance world? Whose dance world? Some of you are probably thinking, I hope. I would like to digress with a quotation and an anecdote that speak for the official voice in contrasting ways. The quote is from the founder of the New York City Ballet, Lincoln Kirsten, who is largely responsible for whatever classical ballet tradition America can call its own. The text is an excerpt from a brief correspondence Kirsten shared with James Klotzty in 1971 concerning the great modern dancer-choreographer, Merce Cunningham. Kirsten says, essentially, the modern dance tradition is a meager school and is without audience, repertory, or issue. It never gained a mass public, a central system, or a common repertory, and the subsequent generation of improvisers depend on multimedia bastardization with not much intrinsic dance interest. It is pretty enough as far as it goes, but there ain't much dance if that's what you're looking for, and that is what I and Balanchine, the academic establishment, are always looking for. 
The modern dance, like the modern art and the modern music, are all victims of what Baudelaire called 100 years ago the decrepitude of art. The insistence of personalism, expressionism, idiosyncrasies against the service of the de-selfed self. You want that one again? Here is an anecdote distilled from a provocative conversation I recently had in Switzerland with a choreographer who had just inherited a state-sponsored modern dance company in Holland. Choreographers must make choices, he said to me. We were discussing the pruning and shaping he was doing in his company. One of the most experienced, well-trained dancers in his group with the fastest, most agile mind was unfortunately burdened with a fleshy body that, quote, just keeps expanding. This choreographer has decided that her body is an impediment to seeing his work clearly. Her big breast, large behind, hips and thighs are distracting, he feels. He cannot watch her on stage. But your big woman is great, he said. When I shared the Dutch choreographer's opinion with Alex, she was predictably provoked. Dance is the exploration of the interior landscape, said Alex, quoting Martha Graham. She went on to say, but we cannot look past the instrument of the body to see that landscape. Our concept of body is inextricably linked to how we see dance. Nowhere is this mythology so distinct as in the dance community, which has based its aesthetics on the concept of surpassing the capabilities of the average body. All of our bodies have been or will become limitations to us, whether or not we are Olympians or supermodels, says Alex. I would be curious to know what Mr. Kirsten or the Dutch modern dancer choreographer would make of disabled performers or mixed ability dance groups? Would it make them uncomfortable? Does it make you uncomfortable? No doubt. However, like most of us living in this whirlwind cultural environment, both these men have probably learned how to look at others' truths. Negotiating difference. Ah, the golden term. Negotiating difference is an essential skill in all good citizens, and we must all master it at this time, or so they say. It's a social skill, however. Are we required to look at others' truths in art? Are we required to pay for it? Though I identify with Alex's dismay in, we can't look past the instrument of the body, I believe the Dutch choreographer does not look past it because he is not required to look past. He's right. Choreographers like the rest of us have to make choices. We choose whom we love, associate with, learn from, and what and how we produce. Though I am disappointed in myself and others when we define our choices too narrowly, my disappointment does not matter so much. The only thing that really matters is my actions. Choreographers must make choices. In working with Axis and pressing more aggressively at the ever-widening creed of inclusivity our era lays claim to, I see that mixed ability performers challenge the notion of dancers as a physical elite of perfect gods and goddesses. Of course, Lincoln Kirsten has this to say. 
Without acrobatic virtuosity based on four centuries of logical exercises, a dancer cannot hope to attract the mass public that overlaps onto athletic events, ball games of whatever category, foot, base, or basket. The mass public is what pays $125,000 a week for 40 weeks of New York City Ballet. While Mr. Kirsten is satisfied to measure success by the size of his audience and in dollar amounts, Judith of Axis says, our mission is to create dance together. We believe, whether we intend to or not, that by producing interesting works and getting them shown, we are achieving our goal and having an impact. Can't you say anything else? Do we want the notion of dancers as perfect gods and goddesses to give way? Not much to worry about here. I suspect that with the juggernaut force of our dream machines, Hollywood, TV, and the entertainment industry in lockstep with the profit-obsessed media, the present official canons of beauty will certainly go unchallenged. The body, a gateway to excitement and wonder, a portal that opens to a desperate struggle, excitement, wonder, struggle, what is it all at the service of? The culture wars in which there have been many battles fought, attacking and defending the official voice, its sacred cows, its canons of literature, poetry, music, and dance are far from over. Diatribes and punches below the belt are still aimed at what is called political correctness, affirmative action, and victim art. And yet, I hesitate here in recalling one portion of Lincoln Kirsten's caustic appraisal of modern art as the decrepitude of art, the insistence of personalism, expressionism, and idiosyncrasies against the service of the de-selfed self. One more short film. Let's look at this.
Stretch, honey. You gotta look way in there. Paul Kaiser and Shelley Eshgar, the artists who created this work, Ghost Catching, a virtual dance installation. While enthusiastic about my performance, were curious to know what would result if they took away the particulars of my body and personality. The result is what you have to see right now. 
Utilizing motion capture, state-of-the-art digital technology, they have shed some light on possible avenues of choreographic expression for the future, suggesting in the process a world that leaps past many of our present body concerns. This technology allows us to animate any form, human or otherwise, with the movement that has been captured. So what of Mr. Kirsten's de-selfed self? As seductive as the prospect of a choreography free of the tyranny of time, gravity, personality, and psychology, the body, this is not what inspires me to go forward. I have to acknowledge that I am most ecstatically engaged when creating at the frontier between social and the aesthetic. For whatever reasons, personal or otherwise, it is here that I find the push and pull that gives content to my form and form to my content. I contend that the bodies of Alex, Larry Goldhuber, or Judith, just like any other dancer's bodies, must, to some degree, become de-selfed materials. These materials must be at the service of some attempt to broaden the notion of what is meaningful, true, poetic, and dare I say, beautiful. The truth is that it does not matter if one is a prisoner of conscience, an abused minority, or disabled. If one decides to make art, it must succeed through virtues independent of one's otherness. If one, we find passion enough to create something in this mediocre, mean-spirited world, please let it be good. And what is that? Is it rigorous in its craft and design? Does it have resonance exceeding the particularities of who, how, and when it was made? Does it continue to grow and evolve through time and repeated encounters? Let me go further. Does it make one look closer, listen more intensely? Does it set us singing, dancing, dreaming? Does it encourage us to be brave and resourceful in face of a truth that says we are born, we develop, we decline, and we must die. A dancing poet once said, the human shape is a ghost made of distraction and pain, sometimes pure light, sometimes cruel, trying wildly to open this image tightly held within itself. Oh, freedom. Freedom, oh freedom over me. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, the hour, the hour is late, and some of you obviously have to go, but I'd like to, if you'd like to, we could talk for another 10 minutes or 15 minutes. Anything you'd like to challenge or take in what has been said? Yes, ma'am. A little louder, please. I wondered if you've created any works using people of many different ages, children, 
all the way through to older people in uh -oh. terms of different ways, different bodies, right. and different ways of relating. The lady is asking if I've created works using um, inter-age uh, uh, performers, intergenerational performers. And as a matter of fact, I'm now working on a work which is called The Table Project, a work which was premiered recently at the Walker Arts Center. And uh, the premise of the work is that it would be the same eight-minute bit of choreography done to the same music, but performed by four distinct groups. When we do it uh, in May at uh, City College at Aaron Davis Hall, it will be only two groups. The four groups are men, in Minneapolis they had to be 50 and older, young girls from the age of 7 to 13, women 50 and older, and young boys from 7 to 13. They, uh, we did them in Minneapolis, boom, 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 four times in a row, and then four times uh, that day. It was very informative. Uh, so right now, no, I'm not trying to integrate my company into intergenerational work, but I am still interested in doing it. Yes. Anyone else? Yes, sir. And we die. <laughs> oh, that's the truth of the model, isn't it? That's the, that, no, that's the, no, no, and it, we're not talking so much, you meet a middle-aged man. I don't, I don't imagine in 30 years uh, I will be at the same physical condition I am now, but then again with modern medicine, the fact of the matter is the machine, as Tolstoy said, it's designed for living, but it's also designed to live and to die hopefully with grace and dignity. Nothing wrong with that. And decline is a word we attach uh, pejoratives to. But think of it as, think of your favorite cliche, sunset. Do it with grace. And can you still feel, you feel sexy? Can you still feel vital? Uh, all of those things. So I don't have any problem with the arc. As a matter of fact, it's a circle, some say. Yes, anyone else? Yes, ma'am. pretty obvious question. Did you have, did, does Alexandra experience more host, hostility to her form than Lawrence Goldhuber did? Yes, she did. Yes. Uh, Alex, uh, I think there, people feel somehow when a woman does that because the way we're invested, I don't know, the women could probably tell me why. But when Alex is on stage, I believe there's a lot more somehow at stake. When he's on stage, he's a big jovial guy. He, people love his personality. Uh, somehow it was, um, we, we performed in L.A. and at the uh, Chandler, uh, it was for an award ceremony, and Placido Domingo was there. He came up and said, hey, you hired General Schwarzkopf. You know, slapped him on the back and said, oh, you want to choreograph for me? You want to choreograph for big guys? Fine. But you wouldn't see, I've never had a woman uh, star that say that they identify with Alex. So there are lots of women and people in the audience who thank me, quote, for presenting Alex on stage. But somehow or other, it's uh, more at stake, and people have more resentment about her size, particularly because she's supposed to be a dancer. Yes. Thank you very much. And, oh, yes. Yes, sir. Thank you. Just on a personal note, I've been looking at plans all day about a new theater we might build in Princeton, and we were talking about 
do we need handicap access and how important is that and will we have handicap performers ever and your opening piece was just a real eye opener of how important it is to build all that in and make sure that we're open to new ideas and new thoughts. Yeah. Well, is it important? Is it important? Uh, how many people here have seen mixed ability companies? Yeah? Well, talk. What? What about it? What did, I mean, for those of you, let's say those of you who have not, what did you think when you saw them? Yeah. Yes, ma'am? Um, that's all right on me. Um, I, I, <laughs> um, I, I already felt a lot of things that I saw, and I'm sorry that I don't know the name, but it was beautiful little solo that she had. The, Megan? Yeah. Megan. Yeah. I'm so glad they did it, yeah. Right, and uh, there's no apology for her. Yeah. Yes, would you, were you saying something, Matt? I just said it worked. It did work. Yeah. You didn't feel it was, quote, as someone said to me, that sometimes the material I use is unfair. Well, now think about it, right? If you put somebody on stage that is, that we feel sorry for, how can we look at them with objectivity as art when in fact all we can see is the sadness and lack of choice in their life? Quote, someone said, performers, actors go on stage and they choose to play a cripple. But you're going to put somebody on stage who has no choice but to do that. We have no choice but to feel one way about them. They chose. Yes, this is my feeling. That's how definitely they feel. But you know, this is the language of the cultural wars. This is what I mean, these punches, right? Or it's, it's ignorance or it is a set of values. Dance is about acrobatic virtuosity that transcends me and takes me out of this body. What you're doing is social work. That is what is said. Pardon? Mm -hmm. and, um, incorporating well, I think that's a success. Uh, there is the other side of this, which, you know, people take everything. I was reading recently a very left-wing woman writer, I believe she's from Oberlin, and she was saying that what bothers her about another dance company that she knows of in Cleveland is that they always say things like you just said. When you see them, you forget they're disabled. Well, you understand what I'm saying. It's like when you see them, I don't think about him being black. You know what I'm getting at? Please, ma'am, I'm with you. I'm just trying to learn myself. But everything has its, its flip side. Yes. Mm -hmm. I saw the wheelchairs with people. I mean, first of all, it was not, I guess they're not active, they really are disabled. But by the time it had developed, 
by the time you sort it, it's peace, it's clear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, I understand. Mm. Yes. No, I think I'm, I'm not. I'm not asking you know to take. I, be, I think we have to each because you know this gentleman's going to build a theater, and there is money to be raised. There is consciousness to be raised. The arts are under attack in the country. Uh, what is good art, and what is misguided guilt? These are the questions that happen in chamber of conferences, that happen in art centers, on boards of directors. These are the questions that the cultural wars are really about. And can access be as good as everybody else? And they are determined that they're going to go forward. They're, they're a company at 10 years old, I think. Yes, was there someone? Yes, ma'am. I was just going to ask that. Is it possible to be objective? Is it possible to be objective? Yeah, in terms of art, who needs objectivity? Yeah, but just like the choreographer, you're not required to like it, right? But are you required to pay for it, right? Are you required to teach it in your schools? Yeah, that's the question, yes. Did you, have, did you ask any handicapped people that were not artists how they felt when they were watching your experience? You know, I did not, but I did ask Judy how she feels. <laughs> And Judy is the director of the company in the wheelchair. She was doing this. And she says, quite frankly, a lot of her of work she can't watch. These are her friends. She said, for instance, I can't watch the writhing on the floor type of disability work anymore. She has taste now about what she likes and does not like. She says she judges it just like good ballet or good uh, uh, modern dance. There's good mixability work and not. Um, I have seen works that I really wish I wasn't watching them. And I think that they're, just like a lot of communities, a lot of us, they have had to go through a phase where all the works were about disability. And now people like Axis have been around long enough, they have the confidence to say, hey, this is who we are, and we dance. Now, they still have to fight public perception, the well-meaning persons like you and I. Uh, but uh, they, they say, we're going to go ahead because that's the water we swim in. Yes, ma'am. No, they are they are professionals and they are artists. Yeah. Right. of all four limbs getting into wheelchairs and mm. doing this. Yes. Actually, I wasn't sure they didn't. Yes. Yeah. 
And in Axis, the gentleman is saying the irony is of dancers without, with other con uh, full use of their body getting into wheelchairs. In Axis, they said it's a big deal in the disability world, in the choreography. And it's, a, and it's a line you have to be very careful about how your chair is used on stage. But they were pretty open. They said, look, if, if we are, because you know, there's a lot of crying of incorrectness in their community too. Even the term mixed ability, some people don't like. Some people like to use differently ability, no, uh, differently abled. You know, they, so these things are all, all in very much in ferment. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, um, my prejudice when I was first watching it was that, um, that this work was very therapeutic for the people who were in the wheelchairs and which is that, the kiss of death you know right that helps <laughs> that it was helping that keep them perhaps more healthy because you know, they were working out and being mm -hmm. active and then but I realized that you know anybody who does um, any kind of art would probably say there's a therapeutic value to that art but I zoomed, zoomed in on that with the, for the people in the chair whereas I didn't think about that for the people not in the chair and another prejudice I had was um, when towards the end when the when the dancers were all together, I was thinking about the people who weren't in a wheelchair. You know, aren't they afraid that those people might run over their feet? And it never occurred to me to think that, you know, dancers who may not be in chairs, you know, someone could always step on your feet when you're dancing. But when I saw Pop those chairs, I was very worried. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but I was very worried for the people uh, who uh, didn't have the wheelchairs if they might, because mm. they weren't wearing shoes. Yeah. And well, I think what, you're, what is really very nice about what you're saying is that you were watching yourself watch, which it seems to me, which is the whole deal right now in the, in the um, era of the cultural wars, because there are whole communities of people whose concerns I feel I should want to know more about, but I don't. And therefore, when I encounter them, I have to watch myself watching them, and it's, I have to, like at first, take it like medicine, because I want to be a well-rounded, non-biased person, that's kind of egotism, I understand that. But the fact is that's what it seems to be the skill of negotiating differences about us all, isn't it? Uh, have you been in, in situations where you're listening to someone say something that you really, it is important, they're talking about something, but you say, you know, I just don't, it's so far away from me, I don't really want to hear it. I feel that that's, that's what happens in a lot of art in this era as well. So I don't know if I'm sitting in a room of very good liberal people or what, but you're the audience that uh, we need in this era. You know, uh, let's just take one or two more because I think we should be breaking. Yes, ma'am. Were the uh, are the disabled dancers were they disabled? Were they professional dancers before becoming disabled, or have they? What is the lady getting at right now? <laughs> right. I'm going to push you on that, ma'am. What do you mean by that? What, what, what would, why do you ask that question? There, there's a wonderful grace that they showed in their wheelchairs. And I wondered if their bodies had been trained ah. for that grace prior to becoming disabled. And once they got over the feeling and the knowledge of their disability, yes. they return to what their bodies had learned, or whether they sought to find a new life for themselves after they became disabled. Well, your question is, is, is well taken. Let's say Judy, for instance. Judy comes from Oklahoma on a horse farm. She was, quote, very athletic, and she rode horses. As a matter of fact, I think she had her accident on a horse. It took 10 years for her to come to grips with her disability. And she said that she was depressed for 10 years. Then she began to 
decide one day that she wanted to move, literally. She started taking, believe it or not, she told me, kung fu classes and lifting weights. And um, her sexuality, she came out as a gay woman. Um, she never had sex, as a matter of fact. I think the first sex she had while she was, she said, was with a disability uh, man after the first sex she'd had in, in 10 years. And then she began to, and suddenly she realized she found herself doing improvisation, literally writhing on the floor, the stuff that she doesn't like to watch anymore. And she said she found, began to find pathways that were possible. And then the light went off. Oh, wow, every day I'm discovering something. And then she began to find other people who were making the same discovery, and they made a company. And it's been now 10, is it 10, 12 years, Janet? It's, they're probably 12 years now, aren't they? Yes, and, and uh, the original founders are gone. She's the only one there. Most people you see here are new. Megan, I don't think, the woman in the wheelchair, I don't think Megan was a dancer before. Megan just has a heart of a poet. And uh, her uh, condition is, what's the term, deteriorating. So it was very intense to work with Megan, who I found one of the most, as you said, most beautiful things, one of the most beautiful performers I've had the opportunity to work with, naturally. And I think that she is... Uh, it's changing right in front of our eyes. So when I said repertory, what happens? When Megan's not able to do that anymore, they have to find someone else who can do it. The man Uli on the floor is now a father of a one-year-old boy, and he's a marine biologist, right? So he's doing both, and he's decided to leave dancing, and they have to find a replacement. Young man from Cleveland, walk, dancer, walking from an audition, hit by a car, lost his leg to here, has just come out of rehab, wants to dance again, has now come and he is apprenticing with them. He may take Uli's place. They're dancers of a special sort, but the same things we encounter. Yes. I just really want to commend that piece. I feel that um, Aside from the artistic qualities, one of the quotes that you had early on read about um, the images of people outside being the, the mirrors and that we become fearful of those pieces. That was Alexandra Beller's words about her own body. Yeah, and, and this uh, just kind of cap capsulized that to say not only for adults but having worked with uh, children and adolescents who are really getting in touch with themselves and see themselves as having so many limitations, I think everyone should experience a quality piece as this was yeah. to really get in contact with the limitations that we have instilled on ourselves mm. and to what you call branch out and yeah. come back in to really find a place of expression. Well, that's what the we promise, have. isn't it, of all this madness in the cultural wars right now. I think it will be a, a richer world. Uh, but, you know, the fact is just getting there. It is so difficult to know how to talk to people. You know, it's so difficult to know. I don't know when to open a door for a woman or not. Mm -hmm. And I know that's a, a lame thing to say, but it's like reading who she is, what she wants. Why do I want to do it? Well, I'm trained that way. I feel big and strong when I do it. Is she going to let me play that role or not? I think it's this constant give and take that at the end, I think we'll be better for it. Uh, children, those of you who have children, there should be a license, you know. You know? You really must have faith in this world. 
to dare bring kids into it. Yeah? And you're on your own on that one, right? <laughs> Thank you very much, everybody. Have a good night. Thank you.